You're listening to a podcast by the BCG Henderson Institute, BCG's Think Tank. In this series, hosted by fellow Dave Young, we'll interview business leaders and explore how companies can build competitive advantage by creating a sustainable world. Now on to our episode. Today, I'm joined by David Stanton. David's bringing to our conversation over 28 years of experience in water and the environmental industries in the United States and abroad. Now, in this episode, we're going to explore the challenges and value of helping companies enhance their sustainability by effectively dealing with their waste streams in new ways, and in doing so, obtain operational efficiencies and business model advantages. And David, I'm really delighted to welcome you to this session and to learn more about helping your customers on their journey to sustainability and business performance, and also as a longtime participant and champion of sustainability to understand more about how you're seeing things today. So welcome. Thank you, David. Thanks for having me. I super appreciate this opportunity and really look forward to this discussion. And thank you and uh, BCG for you know, putting this together. I've been in this industry mostly focused on the sustainable use of water in communities and nations and industries. Currently, I'm the CEO of a company called UGSI Solutions, which is very focused on helping water and wastewater utilities achieve their water quality goals. We have a portfolio of proprietary and patented technologies and services that really allow the utilities to meet the upcoming standards that are going to be put on them, really focusing on water quality from the plant to the point of discharge or the point of use, where a lot of the current regulations really just regulate the water quality at the plant. So this is really kind of the future of where water quality is going. So I'm very excited about my new role as CEO of this uh, enterprise. But to kind of take a step back, I got here through a you know series of mostly water and wastewater infrastructure related jobs. Most recently, I was CEO of Suez's North American Utility Infrastructure Footprint, which is the third largest group of water and wastewater utilities in the country. And when I was at that position, I noticed that we were being heavily impacted by the lack of waste service infrastructure to properly meet our needs. And the biggest issue that emerged was this contaminant, these forever chemicals called PFOS and PFOA that were starting to pop up in the environment. And in the utility side, we were having to start treating and remediating for these products. But the fact is, these products need to be taken out of the environment as a hazardous or specialty waste and properly disposed of. And as I researched that infrastructure, noticed that it was probably needing at least as much, if not more, investment to accommodate the needs than the water and wastewater infrastructure is. So I spent then spent a couple of years with Harsco Clean Earth, helping them put together a strategy to really be the premier, you know, reverse logistics and processing company for specialty waste in the country. We really put together a great plan, did a few acquisitions, and it's still a work in progress, but it's definitely an exciting uh, infrastructure opportunity to really build out a, a heavily needed part of the infrastructure. So what's unique about my background is it's sort of spanned with both the water and wastewater and the waste and environmental uh, services needs. And I'm kind of a little unique in that regard as an executive in the environmental industry. Most people kind of spend you know, all their time in one or the other funnel, but it's going to be a really unique perspective on regulations and how they interact. CERCLA, RICRA, Clean Water Act, Drinking Water Act, you know, these things are all written in silos, but they actually have a lot of interplay going into the future. It's definitely given me a perspective in both sectors on the impact that technology 
and digital transformation will have in terms of solving the problems and you know bringing down the cost of solving with better data and better knowledge of what's really going on and then thirdly it's clear that you know we have a you know several decades of heavy infrastructure investment in front of us in both sectors and you know the rest of my career will be dedicated to sort of solving for these issues i think what's so fascinating about you guys um is this notion that within markets today as we pursue sustainability there isn't necessarily the right infrastructure to enable it to happen at the scale that it needs to so the idea that sustainability is in some way it's just about trying to do things smarter you know you actually need the ecosystem through which to do it smarter and that's what you're building and that's why i think you guys are such a fascinating company in this endeavor and as a guy who spent you know your career making our water and environment safer and cleaner you must see this evolution how do you see this unfolding what do you think makes this moment different both for your customers but also for you in the future we're in the middle of a transformation to a more sustainable view of energy which is going to require the large scale massive use of batteries and those batteries require lithium ion and cobalt and nickel and compounds that have to be mined in the most environmentally destroyed parts of the earth right now and as we use those bring those materials into our economy we have to have a path to reuse so we have a chance to get ahead of that one right i mean we know that there's going to be a 5000% increase in waste batteries 5 years from now than from today okay someone's got to collect them someone's got to process them you've got to break them into their reusable components you have to get the lithium and the cobalt materials to someone a site that can actually repurpose them back to manufacturing into the circular economy none of that infrastructure exists yet we've already committed the entire economy to this battery future so I, I really think it's a neat moment where we still have some big problems to solve from the past, but we also have a you know and I think a little more fun and exciting opportunity to look at the future and say well how do we get ahead of that, and really make some good decisions today that will prevent those issues from becoming crises you know ten twenty years from now. So David, you take very much a systems perspective to this, and almost in some ways sort of saying wait a second, let's look at the problem. from as kind of the highest altitude we can here to see how are we really going to get at the fundamentals of the problem and you're building a business around doing exactly that how do you do that with a customer how do you help the customer begin to see if you will the systems nature of that challenge with waste and that challenge in circularity and that challenge with crap some stuff that gets scarce in the future where circular is an answer there's sort of a pyramid or a maslow pyramid of opportunity with your customers that sort of starts at the bottom with the general view is it's waste just get rid of it i don't want to know about it you know that's where everybody was in the past and you know people are starting to move up the you know to say now well okay let's it's not just waste it's dangerous waste so it's not just get rid of it it's where is it going i have some liability here i have some its ownership here to not you know make sure this turns into a bigger problem so you kind of move up a notch with the customer to just do it right don't just get rid of it but get rid of it in the correct way and that little pyramid grows all the way up to you know how do you get these molecules that i've brought into the environment back into the economy as opposed to just either burying them or destroying them somehow you have to walk people up that pyramid there every once in a while someone tries to jump from the bottom of the pyramid to the top but it usually doesn't work that way you usually have to kind of start 
bringing people up. You have to work with clients at the very bottom and you have to work with clients at the top all at the same time because everybody is not, their business models aren't evolved enough to handle the most, you know, sort of altruistic part of the top of the triangle. But, and I think your earlier question kind of links into this. What's different about this moment today is I see boards and investors looking at the top of the triangle for the first time. And they're not just asking, how does this impact EBITDA at the bottom of the triangle? You know, so they're, they're really looking at the top of the triangle and that's starting to change the behavior of management and companies to say, oh yeah, maybe we ought to look a little up, you know, and, and see how to do this better. And, and that's really a trend that is going to pay huge dividends in sustainability as we go forward. Do you think most companies understand the scale of the potential liabilities they have around their waste streams today? I think most corporations do. Most large companies are pretty sophisticated today in terms of if I bring this material to life and it leaves here and creates a new problem, I own that problem. I think that liability is pretty well understood and well managed. I think there is still a strong reliance on compliance to absolve them of that situation. And the way that you know I view compliance, and I think most people that are sustainably minded view compliance is Compliance is like the minimum standard. That's like the next layer on the triangle. That's nothing towards the top. It's something you have to do. It's part of the triangle. It's a base, you know, but it doesn't really drive outcomes beyond just, you know, the bare minimum requirement to be safe. I think companies actually will have to lead this. I don't think government regulations will always lead this. I think companies have to say, no, no, we're going to be more than compliant. We're going to do things that aren't even asked because we know long-term it's the right way to go. And someday regulation might be there and it will be a compliance issue, but let's be ahead of that. And it's not every company that thinks that way, but I think the best companies you can list are mostly thinking that way. David, one of the changes we're beginning to see is some companies moving from a mindset of risk to a mindset of opportunity. It sort of takes a look at the sustainability challenge and says, you know what, yeah, we can look at this as risk, we can look at it as cost, we can look at it as compliance, or we can begin looking into it and saying, what are the opportunities within our business model? It sounds to me like in your pyramid approach here, in helping customers sort of think about this, you're bringing them to that opportunity. How do you help them sort of see that it's, this is just not new cost to the business? This can, in fact, be a way to make the operating model better, be a way to create options for the business that maybe weren't there before. There's actually a couple of dynamics that have shifted pretty hard since we originally put the plan together that have actually kind of added some fuel to this question that you're asking. And a very basic one is, can you sustainably build your business model around product coming out of China? Okay, very simple question. And in the last two years, I see a lot of customers saying, I don't think so. Bringing onshore growth projects that they otherwise would have done offshore from the U.S. based on the current view towards sustainable growth in the long term and geopolitical risk, the pandemic risk, the disruptions. And they're asking, do you have the capacity to handle our future? And I mean, we have customers asking this question. In five years, if we put four new facilities in North America, can you handle all our materials? And it's really interesting that the sustainability dialogue now has not, it's not just about the environment locally, it's become about the environment globally. And people are starting to put value on doing it right in a way that 
is going to drive, I think, another round of innovation, you know, because you're not going to onshore uh, chip manufacturing or a big assembly facility to the U.S. unless you're trying to automate, you're trying to bring innovation, you know, you're not just counting on low cost labor to solve your problems when you do that, you're bringing a lot to the table. I think it's going to trend we're on now with sustainability, it's going to include a lot of doing it right at home, which I think is a really a great outcome, however we got here. <laughs> the fact that people are talking about doing it right at home right now, the best companies is really, I think, a, just a fabulous trend. You've made a number of really interesting points along the way here between sort of thinking about the innovation of infrastructure, thinking about the innovation of the business model that some companies use, to the innovation of some technologies that are here. Can you talk how do you think about innovation and how do you help customers think about innovation? We are looking at it in a couple of waves. The first wave for us is we want to innovate just how we do our work. We think there's just a tremendous opportunity to improve both the quality of service and the ease of doing it right through a digital transformation. So it's not innovative to the rest of the world, to be quite honest with you, David. The type of stuff we're talking about has been done over and over again in other sectors. We're just going to apply it to our sector. And by bringing digital workflow in, we're going to bring data to life in the industry that it's never had before. And that's what I'm most excited about is it's not just, you know, now the processes are better, doing it right is easier. So we think that's going to create market. But now we're going to have data that we've never had. And once we have all that data, I think we're going to learn a lot. A lot of dangerous material gets incinerated in this country. And we have a shortage of incineration capacity based on where the economy is today. And it's a really disruptive problem. And I think if we had all the data we need, maybe 40% of what's in line to be incinerated actually doesn't need to be incinerated at all. That there could be really viable reuse and recycling opportunities that could be invested in and built if we had that data and had access to the material. So it becomes a bit of a reverse logistics plus data problem for what's going on today. It's going to look really innovative. Once you identify those flows, and let's just play that example out, you pull out that 40%. It's not being reused or recycled now because we don't know what it is. We don't know where it is. We don't know how to get to it. But also maybe there needs to be some innovation to make it more cost effective and easy and safe to actually physically reuse or recycle it. So there has to be some innovation in technology around reuse and recycling of specific compounds and, and materials that we think is a lot easier to do today than it was 20 years ago, given the way the world and the economy are working. And when we do that in every other area of the environmental space, the US, what we've always brought to the equation is doing it right and it's economic at the same time. Some of the European models do it right, but it's all through subsidy and tax and it's not necessarily driven by an economic model. And our goal is that, no, these, this has to be driven by an economic model. We do need good regulation and compliance you know, along the way, but we think you can marry up technology and innovation with the need and get to the right cost point and then make it really easy to the point where things will start to be reused and recycled that are being buried or burned today. I think your point about economics is terrific. You know, at the heart of innovation is these pressures, right? That says we want a sustainable solution, but we want it scalable because it's good business. And you're trying to bring both those together in your world, which uh, I think is a good lesson for all of our listeners to contemplate a bit. 
Could we talk a moment about traceability? You know, we're finding in some industries that one of the things that's becoming increasingly important in sustainability is this ability to see kind of through the value chain and trace from origin to use to perhaps reuse what's going on with a particular element. Is that part of what's happening here? Is there also a need to enhance through data or other forms the ability to have these traceable flows from production to waste to disposal or to reuse? Yeah, I think if you look at how that data is being used today, it's being largely used for compliance reasons. We want to be able to hold individuals or companies accountable for the, the waste they generate through the sort of life cycle of that waste. And so it's very driven by the compliance need to track and monitor that, which is driven by the, you know, the risk issues around it. It's really not being driven by the economic opportunity that reuse and recycling has. And a simple example of that would be, you know, if we were tracing all the lithium going into batteries, we would know where it is and what inventory of lithium is out there. And we could project the recycling needs as those batteries were out. And, you know, we kind of tie out the full circle of how to do that. And, and to some degree, we can estimate that. And the industry does. There's lots of analysts and things that do that. But, but it's really not linked to the product data that closely, right? Like, I don't know how much lithium I have in my home. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Nobody really knows. You know what I mean? There, you know, we don't know these things and the data is there, we could. So I think as we bring data to life, it'll be interesting to see how it drives the economics more than just the compliance. How do we wrestle with the question of scarcity here? How are you seeing scarcity going forward? And, and what do we need to do to make the ecosystem open enough so that we can get the capacities we need for these kinds of new businesses. Part of our business model is built around the presumption that there's probably going to be fewer sites than more going forward. So even though the demand is going to grow as we get more science, more ability to monitor and measure these dangerous materials, we're going to find more of them all around us that need to be processed more safely than they have in the past. So we see the demand side growing. But we actually think that these types of industrial sites that can do this type of material will become more and more scarce. It's a good and a bad thing, I would say. It's good in that it gives us comfort investing in these sites and these facilities because we know their need is going to be there for the long term. At the same time, you know, it's going to create some challenges just because of the nature of what they're doing and what our permits and our sites are allowed to do. It's going to become more infrastructure and utility like over time as a result. I kind of view that all as a good thing though, David. I mean, we often talk about regulation and bureaucracy is something that companies don't want, you know, but, you know, when we're talking about sustainably protecting the environment and how do we solve for these problems over the long term, and how do we safely put 20-year investments onto these sites to solve for 20-year needs, we're going to need some good regulation and good government support to make all that happen. Long term, it's going to be a partnership between kind of the societal needs managed by government and regulation and a private company willing to step in and fill that gap and make it happen in a way that's safe and reliable and economic. And that public-private partnership has to be part of the vision of a sustainable future, for the, particularly for the people solving this side of the problem. Let's move for a second from, if you will, the infrastructure and sort of the biggest issue to maybe perhaps some of the smallest. You may have a corporation that sort of understands all this stuff, 
But you have all these very small businesses and supply chains and communities all over the place that are dealing with stuff that you'd really rather not just go down the sink or something. You'd really like to get a hold of it. How are you seeing that evolve over the future? And is there a role for some intersection here between the kind of skills you have in digital to enable a wider scale, wider catchment of the needs that many of these small businesses have? We really think that if we can make it uber easy for that nail salon to get rid of their acetone at the end of the day, and we have a service tech showing up at the Home Depot or the CVS or the Lowe's or you know any of the facilities that are near there to take care of their tough materials, the incremental cost of us stopping by and picking it up and dealing with it safely are, are relatively low. We're hoping that as we get through this digital transformation, we can make it kind of uber easy for these small businesses to do that right. And, and I call that kind of opening up new space in the industry. I mean, that's not really, we're not really competing with, we're competing with dumping it slowly down the sink with a bunch of water. You know what I mean? I mean, that's probably what's happening to a lot of that right now. And then all the way on the other side, you know, every home has about anywhere from 10 to 20 paint cans that are half full in their basement. They have a stack of fluorescent bulbs because they know they shouldn't just throw them in the trash. And there's a drawer full of electronic stuff that they know they shouldn't just throw in the trash, but they don't know what to do with. Every home has all that. And, and there's got to be better and easier ways than, you know, municipal collection events where we have like little, and we do these, we have, we run these little fairs where everyone drives up and dumps it all and we sort it all out and find good beneficial reuse for it. But, but I don't think we capture even 5% of that market opportunity through those events. So I think there's opportunities at that sort of B2C level to get this whole sustainability up another notch. Right now, we're going to use the B2B side to get the whole infrastructure in place and then see where that takes us. David, you have an exciting business and with this huge purpose, right? I mean, you're making the world cleaner and greener and better. Can you talk for a minute as a leader? What does that do for your workforce? What does it do in terms of helping you attract and retain talent? You know, at the end of the day, we still run a business which is hard work. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's very hard work. We have to talk about this a lot and really market it to ourselves as why we put a lot of value on this. And what I what I find in this business over time is that that purpose is pretty deeply ingrained with our workforce. At the the closer you are to the customer, the more you feel attached to the fact that we're actually doing something hard and good at the same time. And the further away from it you get, the less you feel it. And so when we talk about purpose in the environmental space, I find myself in very meaningful, deep dialogues with our employees on this topic. And generally speaking, when you get up to the boardrooms and the tops of companies and the financial centers of the company and the back offices, you're having a much more rudimentary dialogue. The purpose is kind of like it's out there in the field, and you sort of have to bring it into the corporate tower. And I think in other businesses, it's the other way around. You end up with this like leadership team that has all this purpose. And it's like, we have to make, we have to doc, indoctrinate the whole company on this purpose. And they're pushing it out, right? We're here, we have to kind of pull it in and concentrate it in the leadership team and in the, in the governance of the company in a way that's, that matches, you know, the way our employees feel. And, and that's really hard to do, actually, because you're managing up. Anytime you manage up, it's feels different than managing down. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of boards, for those people who are listening to us today who are corporate directors, what is it that they should be asking their management teams to really be out front on 
sustainability here or to be a partner to management in the most helpful way? So I think the first step is just to be authentic, you know, and are, do you really authentically believe in it or are you a skeptic in whichever you are, just be honest about it. Because I would much rather be talking to a board member that says, you know, I don't really buy into this stuff yet. I kind of get the idea of it and I see where you want to go, but how do you balance this? How do you be profitable and grow and lead in sustainability at the same time? These seems like they're going to constantly conflict with each other because at the end of the day, if we don't deliver our financial results, nothing is sustainable. I have to be able to openly have that dialogue with skeptics. And one of the things I worry right now is that it's become so popular to be sustainable at the leadership top of the company that this really authentic dialogue is not taking place at the right level. And I would suggest that's the starting point for every leadership team and every board. And you know, you really have to have that kind of that deep, meaningful dialogue and openness and trust that it's okay to be skeptical and it's okay to not believe in it. Doesn't mean we're not going to do it. It just means we have to answer those hard questions while we do it. And I need that kind of support from a board. I, you know, I need to be challenged on this stuff. I don't want it greenwashed and just a lot of happy faces and, and head nodding. You know, so that's what I, I would suggest is the best starting point for director. And you know how you can do this? You know how you can start this process is go talk to your kids about it. They do actually have this authentic belief that we need to find a more sustainable path. I've not talked to a young adult, anybody, you know, 30 and below that's either in school or in their profession that doesn't already truly passionately believe we have to have a more sustainable path that we've been on and that we have to integrate this into what we're doing with our careers and our jobs. What, from your perspective, needs to happen to really accelerate? this journey for sustainability, for sort of the science and value that people can see in waste streams and sustainability? What are the things that you'd love to see come together to really accelerate this? We underestimate the potential for technology in the future, okay? We always try to solve today's problems with yesterday's ideas. Of course, I want better regulation and better governance. And you know, there's a lot of things that you know, sort of tactically need to happen for success. But the one area, if I could wave a magic wand, it would be around this idea of why aren't we investing more into the science and ideas of the future and planning that they're going to radically impact the way we solve problems? I don't see enough dialogue around that either in the in the industries or the government level and the policy setting level. You're leading an exciting company that certainly sounds like it has a brilliant future in making our world better and doing it with lots of innovation, lots of wrestling with the past as well as breaking new ground for the future. So thank you so much for sharing your perspectives, for sharing the clean earth story and the ambition that we should all be aspiring for on how we can be using our businesses to demonstrate better sustainability as well as better operations and profitability over time. Thanks for joining us today. This podcast was part of our series on building advantage in a sustainable world. For more information on this and other topics, follow the BCG Henderson Institute's research online at bcghendersoninstitute.com and our podcast series on Spotify and Apple Podcasts.